Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, advertising, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. Tim, not our usual co-host, is out this week, but I've got some fabulous other guests. Uh, frequent guest, Christina Monlos, a producer on the podcast and senior editor covering the brand marketing world. Welcome back, Christina. Always happy to be here, David. And I think it's been a while since we've had uh, Stephanie Patrick, our uh, recently promoted. So congratulations. The first time I believe we've had you back since your promotion. Steph is now the managing editor of Adweek, meaning she runs the entire news operation. So congratulations on your promotion, Steph. Thanks so much, David. It's great to be back on the podcast. Yeah, really excited. We got a lot of fun stuff to talk about, including a big project that you have been running about marketing to millennial parents, which uh, has been a real fun one. Lots of interesting angles that we're going to get into. We're also going to talk about some big news uh, coming out of politics, of course. Seems like every week this uh, this year. And uh, some big change-ups in the TV slash streaming world uh, and some controversy on the agency side with bid rigging. Uh, so we will, man, we got a lot, of, a lot to talk about. And, of course, the best ads of the week. But first, the news. All right, well, there has been a frenzy in the last, uh, well, just 24 hours, really, of uh Members of Trump's Manufacturing Industry Advisory Board, uh, th this had represented uh, some of the biggest names, in, uh, especially brand names. Uh, I think uh, that we, we had seen Tesla with Elon Musk dropping out a little while ago. But after the events uh, in Virginia with uh, some white nationalists, rallies that had turned into uh, protests and counter-protests and then turned very tragic when a white nationalist allegedly drove his car into a crowd and killed one of the counter-protesters. And many felt that Donald Trump was far too slow to condemn the white nationalists uh, and the some out-and-out -out Nazis that were there, uh, and specifically the KKK. And uh, during the fallout over his delay in doing so, uh, we saw several brands. First, I believe Merck uh, had dropped off this advisory board saying that uh, the CEO no longer felt comfortable being on this board and wanted to focus his efforts uh, elsewhere. 
And then I think in one of the biggest blows, we saw Under Armour CEO Kevin Plank, who had publicly actually said things in support of Trump and had really risked a lot of backlash from his uh, celebrity athlete endorsers uh, in doing so. And uh, now Kevin Plank has dropped off, as has Intel's CEO. Uh, Christina, you've been covering this for Adweek. Tell us the update. Uh, we've been reaching out to quite a few of these companies are, does it sound like most of the others will stay on? Do you think we'll still see a few more drop off? So far right now, what we're seeing is a bunch of statements about how it's important for these brands to remain on the on the council. Either that or we're not really getting a statement from them. Um, you know, I think it's worth noting that uh, Trump has since tweeted that for every CEO that drops out of the Manufacturing Council, I have many to take their place. Grandstanders should not have gone on, in all caps, jobs, exclamation point. <laughs> like jobs. Uh, yeah, that that uh, seemed like an especially petty uh, tweet. I guess not all that surprising, given the tenor of his usual tweets. Um, but I, I was especially interested to see that because of Intel's statement uh, which um, I won't read in its entirety, but uh, there was a point that seemed kind of the opposite of that. It said, uh, I resigned because I want to make progress, while many in Washington seem more concerned with attacking anyone who disagrees with them. And uh, Trump really kind of proved his point there. <laughs> um, I think it's also worth noting that Trump hasn't named any of the other CEOs in his tweet, uh, aside from Merck's CEO, uh, Kenneth Frazier, who is the only black CEO. That yeah, was was the last sorry. black CEO on that council. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a good point. That is the only one he's called out specifically and said, oh, now he can go back to, what, what do they say, like hyperinflating drug prices or something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, this, this attitude, again, nothing is really surprising when it comes to petty responses from Trump. But, you know, when you're trying to keep the, uh, well, I mean, I, clearly he's not trying to really keep the business community on board. He's basically just uh, smearing the ones who leave and then saying, hey, if any leave, uh, more more will pop back up. Uh, I think time will tell if that's true. What are the, the ones who are opting to stay? What is the, what, the, you know, it seems like from their comments, they're not exactly happy with anything he's been doing. Uh, but this is kind of grudgingly deciding to stay. Is that an accurate summary? I, th I think that is an accurate summary. I mean, you you have these business leaders who want to believe that they can like bring back jobs, bring back manufacturing jobs to the U.S. That being said, I mean, if you're going to stay on the council, I think it would behoove you to try and show uh, Americans what what has already been accomplished by being on the council, what it, you think you can accomplish by being on the council. And, you know, if if you if you don't believe that you can accomplish anything, then you're kind of only hurting your brand a bit by staying on at this point. Because when you have major leaders across the country who are, you know, pulling out, I mean, Plank especially, he he has been very vocal about wanting to bring jobs to Baltimore and bring jobs to his community. Um you know, if he's pulling out, I think I think other leaders should really, you know, try and explain why they're staying. Yeah, this is probably overly skeptical or cynical, but uh, I don't know. No, probably not. It's probably just accurate. I don't think Plank could uh, risk another kind of uh, 
instance of looking supportive of Trump in public, he really got just driven, uh, you know, over hard by his uh, celebrity athletes. Uh, last time, uh, Misty Copeland and I believe The Rock and, and several others had come out saying we do not stand with Kevin Plank on on supporting Trump. I just don't think he could risk it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, yeah. I think that that is not something Under Armour could survive is losing all of their A-list talent, which has been such a cornerstone of their marketing. Uh, I did want to read to your point about kind of how some of these brands are staying on. Campbell Soup, uh, in their statement, they said it continues to be important for Campbell to have a voice and to provide input on matters that will affect our industry, our company, and our employees. That was their uh, kind of reasoning for staying on. Dow and GE have also said that they will not drop out. But keep an eye on adweek.com. Christina is doing a great job, as the rest of our team covering brand marketing, uh, keeping that story updated because it is changing by the hour. Uh, so definitely uh, keep an eye on that. Wanted to uh, cover one other big news story coming up this week in the TV slash streaming world. Shonda Rhimes, one of the biggest names in television, creator of uh, Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder and several other big, Grey's Anatomy. Uh, she is uh, moving her Shondaland production studio to Netflix. Uh, this seems like a pretty huge blow, not in the short term. ABC will get to keep all those shows that are already in motion. But Steph, uh, how big of a blow do you think this is going to be to ABC? I think it's a huge blow to ABC. I mean, Shonda has really, she's called a hit maker for a reason. She is cranking out really creative and massively popular ideas for ABC. And I think that has really cre helped create ABC's modern identity with viewers. So when she takes her future shows to Netflix, um, ABC certainly has a problem on its hands and will have to fill that hole eventually. Now, her current TV shows, as you mentioned, are going to stay with ABC. So I think in the short term, not a huge change. Um, Grey's Anatomy and the Grey's Anatomy prequel, for instance, that's in the works, you know, will appear on ABC. Do you guys watch any of these shows? Are you Shonda Land people? Because I am. <laughs> no, I mean, I actually, so I, I watched Grey's in the early days, but I've, I've fallen away as a viewer. So I'm not, I'm not personally familiar with the shows. Christina, you have to enlighten you, us. You guys. I've watched every season of Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> every single one. That's like thirty-nine seasons, right? That's a, yeah, more years a than you are old. Yeah. Is is McDreamy McSteamy still a thing? Or no, they're gone. Oh, see, they're gone. I, yeah, I, I, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I was a fan of Scandal for, I think, the first two seasons. And then it just, like all those shows, it just got a little too crazy. You know, it hey. just it started started crazy. And then it just kept leaning into it. And at some point I was like, if you miss a few episodes of that and then you tune in and like there's been entire assassinations <laughs> and whatever. And you're like, oh, oh, OK, this is a little over the top. Um, This is a little off track. But if you guys haven't been watching Insecure on HBO, it's by Issa Rae. Um, you should solely for the way that like the characters in that show are watching like fake Shondaland shows in there. Oh, there's like meta. a fake scandal in the first season. There's a new one in this season, which I won't spoil, but it's it's interesting. And then um, they actually had one of the actors from one of the Shondaland shows on the like fake Shondaland show. Oh, that's in. fantastic. Wow. 
the new app. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Shonda mentioned that the, her reason for leaving was that she wanted, you know, more creative freedom. And also she cited Netflix's global reach, which I thought was pretty interesting. I think it was last year that Netflix had that day where it sort of turned Netflix on in a lot of regions across the globe. And uh, I think that that's really appealing for creatives. They want freedom and they want an audience. And right now Netflix is in a position to give them both. Yeah, and there's lots of limitations on the licensing of, of where Netflix can show. You know, it's like you can watch uh, uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in Canada, but I, I think you still cannot watch it in America, like on Netflix. You know, there's so many limitations, whereas if, if it's a Netflix original, they can show that stuff anywhere. So to your point, yeah. you know, she gets a lot more freedom and a, just honestly a lot more, a lot bigger audience. I do wonder... Um because she has a she has a partnership with Dove. She has a Dove brand partnership. So I wonder if you know Netflix has to incorporate brands. Sometimes they do. If you look at um, if you look at some of the House of Cards stuff, brands have paid like five hundred thousand dollars just to be called out in an episode where you can like see in the background a Dunkin' Donuts. So I do wonder if Dove will appear more prominently in these new Netflix originals from Shonda. Mm. Yeah, well, certainly an option. And I I think, too, she's going to lean into a lot more R-rated kind of content. Her shows have always kind of pushed those limits of, you know, nudity and and kind of graphic, uh, you know, being a little more real in the last few years. Uh, And so uh, I I think she'll enjoy having that freedom to do that if she wants to, you know, make it as adult as she wants. It's uh, it's. Definitely, you know, what's fascinating to me about Shonda is that she, you know, if you remember in the 90s and late 80s, the celebrity producer was a thing, you know, Dick Wolf and like all this, like you could name these people and it always came up at the beginning or at the end of the show. Uh, And you just don't see that anymore. I mean, you've got like Greg Berlanti, the guy who makes all the superhero shows on CW. uh, But even he, I would bet like the average person can't name the producer behind that. You know what I mean? She's kind of that one remaining celebrity producer. Also, don't forget Crossroads. She wrote that. The Britney Spears movie. Oh, really? I was like like the Ralph Macchio movie where he fights the devil. (laughs) I'm too old, apparently. Uh, All right. And last bit of news, uh, the ANA, which represents uh, brands as a large industry organization, they released a much-awaited report on how agencies are allegedly rigging production bids. This is a story that's kind of, it sounds complicated and people like, I think, glaze over a bit. So bear with me because I'm going to kind of explain this uh, in simple terms because it is a fascinating issue. Basically, what happens is agencies are not making a lot of money. They're not tremendously profitable and they're looking for any ways they can uh, to, to make money. One of the ways they've done this, probably one of the biggest ways they've done this, is to add in-house production studios over the last 10, 20 years these usually aren't gigantic operations, so they certainly still use third-party. You know, when we say production, what we mean is whether it's doing the, shooting the videos, editing the videos, doing post-production work uh, to kind of clean up everything. Traditionally, a lot of that was done by these kind of third-party studios that handle production. But agencies started building their own in-house. And then the, the agent, their, their clients would say, okay, we want you to bid out production for this project. And then the agencies would come back and say, all right, we bid it out. And weirdly enough, ours came in the cheapest. (laughs) 
Now, How weird. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's like, ah, who knew? <laughs> um, you know, there's there's a few reasons for this. One is obviously the agency has a lot of inside information about the bid. So even at its most innocent, you could argue that just by no, just by being the ones who are keenly involved in the bid, agencies have a lot of awareness of how to rig the bid in their favor. Um, but the, the slightly more nefarious versions of this are, uh, and I talked to several producers when we first covered this about a year ago, I want to say. Um, I, I reached out to a bunch of producers who spoke off the record, uh, people at the agency level and in the production industry, and they all said the exact same thing, which is basically that it, it really depends on the agency. Some are mean about it, and some are, are kind of like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours about it. So the, the nicer way to do it is basically to call them and say, listen, guys, um, this project's not huge. We could really use the extra money so that we actually are profitable on it. Do me a favor and bid real high <laughs> and let us win it. And then we've got this much larger project coming up, which we couldn't possibly do it in-house. We will totally slip it to you. Um, and so that's the quid pro quo, right? Is like, let us have this one. You can have the next one. And that, I, I get the hunch is generally the more common approach. The meaner way to do it is basically to lie or to threaten uh, which is certainly possible. So the agencies could give bad information or could tell the production agency, like, yeah, it's going to be huge in scope so that they they send in a huge uh, rate and then the agency wins. So anyway, those are the ways it's done. This uh, report that came out of ANA basically just verified all that. This issue has been going on literally for decades, uh, but uh, it really just came to the forefront because of a federal investigation looking into this practice because, of course, bid rigging is illegal. Uh, and I think we will continue to see that. But I really just want to use this as an opportunity to kind of walk everybody through. Steph, yeah, before the, the uh, podcast, you were talking about that this issue has been kind of complicated for you as someone who did not work in the agency world before. Does it make a little more sense now? Does that help? Or Yeah, no, that, that that's a really good primer, David. Well, thanks. Glad I got up. And uh, yeah, definitely keep an eye out. Patrick Coffey, our agency editor, wrote a fantastic uh, and very uh, thorough piece about this. So definitely look for that on adweek.com. Uh, and I'm sure this is a story we will continue to cover. All right. It is time to move on to normally where we look to Tim Nudd to walk us through the best ads of the week. This week, I'm going to see if I can do my best to fill his mighty big shoes. And we call this section Ads Worth Watching. Right. Energy BBDO, which is the Chicago office of the BBDO network, uh, they are back with another kind of tear-jerking, long-form, uh, very sentimental music track uh, ad. Their last one was the story of Sarah and Juan for Extra Gum. Uh, that one won tons of awards. It's an absolutely gorgeous ad. You may remember it as the one where a couple is chewing gum over the course of their career, or their career, their relationship together. And uh, the the Juan, the guy, has been drawing pictures of each of their moments, and then he turns it into like a museum when he asks her to marry her. It's very touching, very uh, beautiful ad. This one, so that was the story of Sarah and Juan. This one is called The Story of Lucy, and it is not for extra gum. This one is, in fact, for a completely different client. This is for Windex. Uh, which is not not necessarily the first brand, kind of maybe like Extra Gum, not the one you'd you'd think of to have a really lovely sentimental ad, but uh, it is a uh, really kind of cinematic piece about a daughter growing up and her relationship with her dad, who seems to be some sort of I don't know about captain on the seas. <laughs> I'm sure I'm supposed to have made. I don't think he's like a shrimper, but he he runs some kind of boat and. Uh, 
Let's uh, let's listen to a little bit of the track. There's no dialogue. It's entirely uh, musical, but uh, the track is by Grace Vanderwall, uh, and that really has been what's been getting the most attention because it is an absolutely lovely track, and it, the lyrics work so perfectly with some of the visuals, uh, which, of course, doesn't really come across in a podcast, but I encourage you to check it out. Let's listen to a little bit of that track. You and me Together We'll forget what we have been told We'll live in our own dream world You and me Forever We'll forget what we have been told We will take on the whole world Without you here remembering Something inside you is triggering It makes me myself, makes me Steph, uh, you have a relatively newborn kid. Uh, that's obviously, you know, this uh, this ad really kind of leans into the emotional connection of parents and their newborns. What did you think of this spot? Since becoming a parent, I have had a hard time watching anything with like a parenthood plot. And so when I heard that this was a tearjerker, I actually sequestered myself in a private room in the office to watch it because <laughs> I knew I was going to cry. And I did. Um, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's it's in some ways a trite storyline about, you know, a, a dad watching his daughter grow up. Um, it begins with his daughter being born and it ends with him seeing his daughter have her own child. Um, but but it's pulled off in such a masterful way. And I think the music goes a long way. We should note that the singer is 12 years old, which is pretty amazing. Um, and it's just, like you said, it's very cinematic and it just you know, manages to pull on the heartstrings. The way that it incorporates the product, Windex, is is pretty interesting because like you mentioned, Windex isn't this very emotional brand. And they've been known for, you know, say like their play with Big Fat Greek Wedding, kind of taking a humorous sort of schlocky tone. Um, this is a totally different direction for them. And glass, you know, very clear, beautiful glass shows up in different spots in the ad, notably in the beginning when the father sees his daughter through the glass of like, you know, a nursery in the hospital for the first time. And then sees his daughter and his grandchild through very similar glass at the end. And it's just at the end, that moment really connects and you realize, oh, that's why this is a Windex ad. Well, and there's like nine million other types of glass in this this ad. There's a telescope at one point. There's so many like windows and and just there's constantly people are looking through glass. And I mean, that is the theme of the ad. It's just I think it's the summary is something like... uh, what what separates us unites us or there's some kind of thought behind that premise but really it is a beautiful story told with a lot of glass randomly thrown in to remind you that clean glass is good i guess christina you are uh largely immune to such frailties as human emotion what did you think of this ad i was not a fan <laughs> surprise surprise but only because I f- of the casting of the dad I feel like the casting of the dad was really bad because if you if you look at the still image even though he has um like all of this old makeup on when he's like in the back seat of the car with his daughter he straight up looks like he is the one marrying his daughter he looks too young 
bad casting yeah. on my uh, in my opinion um that being said i do i do like the concept of the ad i i feel like the team at energy BBD, bbdo definitely went and saw carol i don't know if either of you saw that last year but that entire movie is basically kate blanchett and rooney mara just looking at each other wistfully through glass And I feel like this spot had to have been inspired by that movie because there's just so much beautiful glass cinematography in it that, you know. Um, But yeah, if the casting was better, I would have liked it. Well, to uh, Steph Ray's point, Grace uh, Vanderwall is very young. She's 12 or 13. Uh, She won America's Got Talent. I think she won, um, but that's certainly where she came to prominence. And that voice you would never expect to be coming out of a child so young. And I think it does lend a lot of the emotional potency of the ad. I would agree with Christina, but it's man, it's just one of those things like aging an actor over the course of a of a of an ad or even a TV show, man, is so poorly done. Uh, you can look at any that whether it's How I Met Your Mother or like any show where they try to age the characters, <laughs> it looks so so dumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the technology is not caught up quite. Um, but uh, other than that, yeah, another uh, you know, I'm sure we're going to see a lot, and it has been getting a, just a ton of praise. I saw Cindy Gallup was praising it on Twitter today. Uh, she's a you know big advocate for the way gender is portrayed in ads, and you know it's just a very kind of earnest connection, and doesn't really play to any any. I, I would say it plays to several tropes about daughters growing up and reaching an age where they are you know they want to be. Uh, separate from their parents and things like that. It's certainly they're not treading any new ground, but they do it quite lovely. Uh, let's uh, cover something completely different now, which is an ad for uh, Safe Auto, a uh, insurance company. And this, these spots, I think any one of the spots is not necessarily all that hilarious, but taken in uh, in combination, uh, they're they're for some reason they got uh, quite a good laugh out of me. Uh, but this is from an Austin agency called Greatest Common Factory, and they created a terrible voice assistant named Farnan, which has all sorts of like little umlaus and uh, accents in it. Uh, but let's uh, go ahead and listen to a few of them because they're they're quite short, and it is essentially the concept is that people are shouting out questions to their uh, really kind of crappily built uh, AI voice assistant and they're getting equally crappy answers. So let's listen to a few of those in a row. Hey Farnan, what time is it in Tokyo? It is 4.30 p.m. June 20th, 1983. That sounds so far away. Thanks Farnan. Hmm, baklava. Hey Farnan, what's Ian baklava? Sugar, cabbage, pickles, and just a touch of toothpaste for color. Cool. I'm telling you, you're wrong. (laughs) All right. Hey, Farnan, how many tentacles does an octopus have? Octo meaning eight. And tentacles meaning ten. An octopus has 18 tentacles. See, I told you. That doesn't sound right. Thank you, Farnan. But Safe Auto can get you a great car insurance quote in just three minutes. That could save you 25%. Reading boyfriend's browser history. Glad someone's making sense. So I I just, uh, I, I think, again, it's like the first time that you watch one of these, the joke is it's okay. But then in combination of just hearing this voice answering the most random, stupid possible answers to things. Uh, I especially like when he gives the time in, in Tokyo as being like 25 years ago. 
Um, what what did you guys what did you guys think of these ads? I mean, if nothing, I don't know is that it ties in very well to auto insurance would be my one beef. But uh, what did you guys think of these? David, Extremely had... dumb. Oh, see, so here we go. You get the pro and con from Christina and I. No, extremely dumb in the way that I'm like, I, I'm into it. I like Good. it. Oh, really? Okay. I Yeah, I had the same reaction as you, David. Um, like, I watched the first one and was like, meh. And then I got like 10 videos deep and was like, this is hilarious. <laughs> Farnhand could be a character in a sitcom. Um, I think that they really went they went deep, like they pushed the idea to an absurd level, which is what made it work. And when I got to the videos uh, about the creator of this, this like Steve Jobs-like, godlike creator <laughs> of this crappy technology explaining uh, the wonders of Farnham, I was just like, oh, they've, they've won me over. <laughs> Christina, what do you think? <laughs> you know how, like, when those vo- uh, those um, navigational tools uh, they-, they used to use before smartphones could do everything, and you could download custom voices, yes! you know, celebrity voices and stuff? I, I want, like, Farnan <laughs> for my Google Home. Like, I just <laughs> want that to be my interface. Oh, man. Um, yeah. Do you guys use a lot of voice AI stuff at home? I don't. I don't like Siri. I do. I I use Google Home quite a bit. I I don't. When Siri first came out, I was getting an MFA in poetry, and I would write poems with Siri. And it was kind of along these lines. Like, I would ask her absurd questions and get absurd answers. And I think, like, the worse the answers were, the better. Um, but I've never actually used voice assistance for for practical reasons. Um, you, you should not let anyone steal that idea. I'm sure other people have done it, but you should definitely start an Instagram with all of those poems that Siri has done and it would be great. <laughs> I'll show you sometime. Um, all right. And uh, last of the week, uh, we've got a bit of a long form piece here and kind of the opposite of the Windex work. This is Droga 5 London for a discount luxury vacations uh, members only uh, website called Secret Escapes. And what I mean by the opposite of Windex is instead of it being musically driven, it is very, very much dialogue, I would say even monologue driven. So these are uh, ads about two people running into each other on vacation and they start having a conversation and it quickly turns into a a uh, long and detailed uh, harrowing story. And so let's listen to one about one man's uh, just I <laughs> run in with pirates on the seas. And uh, we will listen through to the payoff there. You know, I shouldn't even be here right now. This time last year, I almost died. My ship was hijacked by pirates and I was taken. They tied me up in a boiler room. Dirty rag in my mouth. Total darkness for days on end. All I could hear was shouting in a language I didn't understand. One time, I managed to get my hands free. But the restraints had rendered my hands unusable. It would be 37 days until I saw daylight again. Four to see another human face. As they dumped me overboard, I thought, this is it. And when that fishing boat found me, 
I tell you, I've never been so happy to see another human being. Changed my whole perspective on what's truly important in life. I know exactly what you mean. I shouldn't be here either. But I got 70% off a luxury holiday. So maybe a bit like Safe Auto, I... Um... I didn't really love the payoff to this. I was so engrossed in the monologues. I thought they got such great talent uh, to tell these stories and to really get you entranced. And then at the end, it's like, yeah, I, I saved 70% to be here. And I know that's the joke, but you know what I mean? Is It feels like it's like a shaggy dog story, if you've ever heard of those, where you tell a very, very, very long joke, like a 30-minute joke, and then the, it's just a pun at the end. Yeah. <laughs> like an intentional rug pull. Uh, what did you guys think of this? I, I, th- I think... Along the same lines that um, that you do, where it's, um, you know, the talent was really good, the cinematography was good, I really liked the way that as the monologue was going on, the camera sort of punched in and got closer and closer, and, you know, all of that stuff was beautifully done, but... There, there are very few Geikos. Like, Geico does the rug pull all the time, and they make it work, whereas this just felt tacked on. Yeah, and I, I don't think it really conveyed anything special about the about this travel website versus any other. You know, I think it is very much a shareability play of, like, getting people like us talking about it and sharing the stories. But in the end, it's like that message of you can save 70% on a luxury vacation. That's, uh, yeah, to your point, that's a very Geico thing. And Geico gets past that barrier by just sheer quantity. Yeah. <laughs> just blasting you with that message for, you know, for 10, 15 years, uh, you know, over the course of many, many campaigns. So I don't know, maybe Secret Escapes will do that. But if if nothing else, it was good to see David Colbush as creative director at Droga London. I think he is uh, honestly one of the most interesting talents uh, in the advertising world right now. He, it, he's kind of what gives Droga London a very different flavor. Doesn't he have a really interesting Instagram? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's a, a super interesting guy to follow in in general um but uh but you know it's this was a good example of just kind of the it has some of that darkness uh that droga 5 had in their original work which you just don't see as much anymore uh there you know we saw this in the highlight reel of david drogo's best work uh, when he won the the line of state market can uh it's just a lot of their old work was very had a dark sense of humor or just darkness to it and this obviously plays with that but there's another one where a guy talks about being wrongfully imprisoned for 10 years that's a heavy ass yeah <laughs> kind of of course that turns it around at the end but he's just talking about like basically being brutally tortured in prison and i was just like man this whew, they're really going there with, <laughs> with this spot all right well with that we are going to move on to our big discussion of the week all right, so really exciting this week. We debuted our Marketing to Millennial Parents. This is a package of articles and uh, resources that we've been working on for quite a while. Steph, you have been leading the charge on this one. Uh, and as we mentioned before, you are a, uh, a millennial parent yourself. Uh, wh- what did you want to accomplish with this package going in? We, whenever we talk about millennials, I think we all debate, you know, there's there's a right and a, wa- a wrong way to approach millennials in big quotes, you know what I mean, about about a, a homogenous group. What, what was your goal with this package? Well, you know, we used to produce an is- a millennial issue every year. And we kind of, I think we, we all got 
a little sick of talking about millennials ad nauseum and talking about them as this kind of immature, selfish group of kids hanging out in their parents' basement who can't quite get a job. and Entitled, participation trophy. Yes. They like experiences. It's like the same <laughs> same things every time. Yes, exactly. So we, we wanted to do something fresh, something that felt fresh to us and hopefully to readers, which is really acknowledging that millennials have grown up. Um, you know, different researchers kind of slice the generation in different ways, but generally speaking, they're turning about 20 to 36 this year. So they're all officially adults. And uh, we're at a point now where 80% of babies born are born to millennial moms and dads. So I think we're kind of at a tipping point where this generation has grown up, they're becoming parents, and they're disrupting the parenthood economy the way that they have disrupted a lot of other things. Let, let me ask you a somewhat personal question. How do you feel that your parenting is very different than the way your parents raised you? Oh, that's kind of fascinating. I mean, I think certainly um, my husband and I are much more co-parents. You know, my my parents were they're boomers and they were a bit more traditional. My dad worked and my mom stayed home and raised us. Um, it went back to work after we were kind of grown. Um, my husband and I are both journalists. And so when we made the decision to have a kid, you know, one of our conversations up front was like, we're going to do this completely jointly. And I think that that's certainly a hallmark of the millennial generation. Yeah, I felt like for me, you know, my kids are, uh, you know, five and nine at this point. And I, I'm, I'm a little old for a millennial. I'm 40, so I'm kind of on that outer cusp. Uh, but, you know, I feel like I have a lot more flexibility of time and resources than my parents did, uh, just in the sense of we can work remote. We can take a laptop with us. We have our phones. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to be bolted to a chair at all times. Uh, I mean, we certainly all still work a lot of hours, uh, but I feel like that's given me an ability to be there with them and be more actively involved. And my parents were wonderful parents, uh, and, uh, you know, they certainly did their best. They worked very, very long hours. And I, I, I feel like, you know, I was very typically latchkey, just didn't see them very much, uh, which was taught me a lot of independence. Um, but I feel like I am much more present, and my wife is too, in, in our kids' life, for better or worse, you know. Uh, and we still try to give them a lot of independence. But it is fascinating to reflect on just how much technology has enabled us to kind of be there more often. Yeah, you know, that's another big change is I think we have so many more resources than our parents did. Um, one thing that came up in our interviews for this package was how boomers and even Gen X to an extent really relied on like best-selling books from celebrity doctors about how to raise their kids and, and that would like birth these parenting fads. These days, um, people are much more relying on their online communities. So for example, once I became a mom, I got introduced to this whole world of like Facebook parenting groups. I'm members of several of them. And they can be as specific as like parents of babies born the summer of 2016 in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> truly, that's a real group. Um, there's also like a Bococa Moms groups. There's, there's a lot of like Brooklyn, Brooklyn groups, but I'm sure that this is true for communities across the country. And um, parents like me are turning to these groups and turning to our peers online for parenting advice. Um, so, you know, even instead of 
you know, reading books by celebrity doctors or even Googling, people are going straight to their online communities to say, hey, I'm dealing with this. Are you dealing with it too? You know, how are you dealing with it? Um, also, I, I feel like there's certainly uh, there's pros and cons to that, though. You know, it's like, as you've seen, there's also there's the positive reinforcement, but then there's also the pressure. I, I You know, I learned pretty quickly after my first kid, just don't ever talk about parenting decisions with anyone, because it's something that can seem like the most minor thing, like putting your kid in daycare or anything can turn into this lecture about the other person just going like, oh, 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 I see. Oh, OK. You just. Oh, you're doing that. All right. You know what I mean? And and online sometimes by being separated, people can even be a little bit more more judgy. And I feel like that's something my parents never had to deal with, you know, partly because it was like probably an all bottle fed kind of era anyway. Uh, but they there just weren't other resources or discussion groups of like how to raise your kid and how to do it right versus wrong. You know? Absolutely. Like my mom never had to see how moms across the country were throwing their first birthday parties, you know, on Pinterest for their kids. Like she just, you know, <laughs> she baked a cake and had a couple friends over and didn't worry about it. Um, so certainly there is a double-edged sword there where, where the internet can be quite anxiety producing and there's a tendency to compare and despair. Um, do you want to note that Willem had three different first birthday outfits or would you want <laughs> that not to be known? We don't have to talk about that, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so one of the articles I thought was fascinating is that the classic book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, is still being used. It is still remaining relevant. It has kind of expanded into digital. Um, you know, this is one that was already quite, you know, it was not new when I had my first kid. Uh, is it something that you used personally, Steph? And, and what, what did you learn from our article about kind of why it's remained relevant? The very first gift I got after I got pregnant was the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, which my mom sent me. And I have still not cracked it open. Don't tell her. I hope she doesn't listen to the podcast. But <laughs> I downloaded the What to Expect app um, and I used it every single day. And I also used a competitor app called Baby Center. You know, they, they offer very similar things. So um, it's interesting. We had our reporter uh, and editor, Robert Clara, do a deep dive on the What to Expect brand. And he came back with a story packed with so many insights. Um, and it really is the story of kind of an old print brand that has turned itself into a digital media company. And they were very smart. I mean, they they got online early. They got on social media early. Um, they saw which way the wind was blowing. They saw that competitors were bubbling up. And they saw that this generation, you know, didn't want to be told by one definitive source what to do. So they created an app and they created online communities and really turned a lot of power over to their users to share information. And they've, they've stayed relevant um, and are continuing to be successful because of it. One thing I noticed reading that book um when we were having our first, is my parents would talk about when, and you mentioned this kind of at the beginning, is that when my parents were, were first pregnant and they had no idea what they were doing, and the only books at the time were things like Dr. Spock, which has kind of largely been negated, I guess, by modern parenting philosophy. And so they, they really didn't have much. And then what was available was basically like, this is how you parent. You know what I mean? Like it was very insistent and here is the right way to do it. What to expect when you're expecting has this great kind of tone of 
you know, it's cool, man. It's just you're gonna you're gonna raise your kid in different ways than other people. And I remember reading it, thinking it was going to be this handbook of how to ma- how to raise baby, and instead, it's like it has this philosophy of you know, be caring, be nurturing, be generous with yourself. You know, don't don't hold yourself to this impossible standard. R- roll with these things as they come along. And I, I think it was a book that really kind of. Uh, was ahead of its time in creating the right atmosphere where, to your point of having social media and having so many other parents giving feedback sometimes anonymously, it helps to just have a voice saying, you know, hey, we're all different. And as long as you love your kid, take care of them and take care of yourself, things will be all right. That's so interesting that perhaps tonally they were ahead of their time, you know, even before technology came into play. And the origin story is that the the founder, Heidi Murkoff, was pregnant and having trouble finding resources she could relate to. So she, with the help of her family, wrote the book. And I think she got the proposal off like hours before she went into labor. Oh, my God. Man. Well, um, another fascinating story we had uh, is about how uh, pets are basically uh, test babies, uh, fur babies for uh, millennials. And uh, so tell us a little bit about that one. That's by far probably the most fun story from this package. It is such a fun story by our reporter, Sammy Main, and it has really kind of blown up online. It's been the most popular story of the package so far. Um, It came from this nugget of research we got from a research agency called Gale um, that found that 44% of millennials say they view their pets as starter children or practice for the real thing. Um, I can certainly relate. Like six years ago, a lot of my friends were having kids and I was not ready to. So I got a mini schnauzer um, and she's my first baby. Willem's my second baby. One has fur, one does not. And apparently this is this is pretty typical. Um, and we've seen this, we've seen pet brands respond to it. Um, it can sometimes be subtle, but maybe you've noticed um, brands no longer referring to people as pet owners, but pet parents. You know, that's a term that oh, did not exist, you know, a couple decades ago. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that was a, a fun story kind of with a different view of parenthood and the opportunity for brands to reach millennials who aren't, you know, quite ready to build families. Um, but, uh, but, you know, who's, who still need products for their quote-unquote children. There was actually a campaign that I got pitched on yesterday, or I got a pitch for yesterday, um, about a dog called Rudy the Picky Pug. It's from Fresh Pet. It's, it's not about millennials, but it's about an older woman who narrates it and says, you know, I have five sons, and you see four human males, and then Rudy the Pug. <laughs> <laughs> which is that's perfect yeah i think i think everyone is starting to see their pets as babies but you know for for millennials it it's i guess i don't know it feels weird to say it's like a starter for children but i guess it is i don't know i don't like it but i mean i think it gets you used to being beholden for someone else's livelihood and health you know what i mean it's just that I, I think it's certainly easier to have a, a dog. I, like, I have a dog. I have a cat. We, we have pretty much had both since we started having kids. And, I mean, it's really just getting used to being a little more fettered in a way. Like, I can't easily—before we had kids, I couldn't easily just pick up and, and go on a long trip with just us. You know, we had to figure out what to do with the kid. We had to find it. And that is traveling as a parent. 
is either figuring out how you're going to bring the kid, which is about as logistically difficult as bringing a dog with you most of the time, uh, or finding out where you're going to put it, who's going to take care of it. You burn through a lot of favors. Uh, my dog certainly uh, was notorious for only being able to stay with each uh, you know, dog sitter probably once before they were like, never again. <laughs> and so, you know, that's to me, I don't know, it's tough, but did it, do you feel that your dog really prepared you in some ways for having a kid? In some ways, yes. I mean, certainly it, it taught me to be less selfish and, and also, you know, taught me that my time was not fully my own. You know, there were many times like where I'd be like out on the town and needing to come home early to walk the dog. And so I think that was good practice. But I will say, that um, having an actual child has been a real eye-opener because now I'm like, wow, my schnauzer did not at all prepare me for the level of responsibility here. So I worry that my, um, you know, millennial cohorts might be in for a rude awakening if they do choose to have actual children because there is a difference. And, and you know, people say this and it's true. It's like the, the family dog doesn't become a dog until children arrive. And she really was like my baby, but now she is more of a dog. I see the difference. <laughs> yeah, for us, I think it was the cats that we had before we had kids were like this really central part of our life. And it's not like we did a lot of activities, but you know what I mean? It felt like they were as much a part of the family as anything. It's like, oh, you know, God, take care of the cats. And then now the cat is just a thing that runs around that we feed once a day and she chases stuff. And that's about the extent of my relationship with the cat. As the as the person without kids and who has a dog, I can say my my dog is is my little boy. I love him. I love him so much. <laughs> Igby is a very cute boy. Yeah. We've we've finally found like the that that little glistening shard of emotion still <laughs> still inside I, I, Christina. There's a single tear rolling down her cheek. There right is now. not. <laughs> I will say I got really excited when Casper launched their own dog beds. I was like, great, I can get Igby a nice little bed. And he has since destroyed it because that's what he does. Um, but, you know, it's it's nice. Just like kids. It's nice yeah. that those things exist. Well, let's talk about the impact of millennial parents on ads, which I think was honestly the most fascinating part of this to me uh, was that I think we've all seen this, just the portrayal of parents, the portrayal of parenting has become much more real in recent years. It's a little, it feels a little less, this is almost ironic uh, in the era of Instagram, that it feels like ads are trying to be less perfect and to just show that parenting is messy, parenting is, you know, and I think TV shows have been the same, is that it's no longer the perfect baby that never does anything and doesn't affect your life in any way. Uh, it, there's, uh, we've mentioned on this podcast several times, there's Coca-Cola ad, uh, from, I believe from South America, uh, that's called I think, parenthood, uh, or, or parenting. Um, but it's, it's one that the reason it was so beloved and is honestly one of my favorite ads of all time is because it shows parenting as this really messy, imperfect, uh, but, but in its own way, wonderful, uh, kind of process, but, but it is not, you know, all, all that, that. TV necessarily <laughs> tried to portray. Uh, so, uh, Steph, tell us a bit more about that, about the impact uh, that we're seeing on ads. I think this is a major shift, and I think it's really recent. Um, I mean, certainly, I've, I've had the experience for years of watching parents 
portrayed in TV ads and just like wanting to throw something at the TV. Like I'm so tired of seeing the mom in khaki pants and a button down shirt, you know, chipperly like wiping up the kitchen and the dad who like somehow is 40 but doesn't know how to use a paper towel. And this is really changing. And Christina's reporting found that um, generational preferences are a big part of what's causing that shift. And Christina, maybe you can talk a little more about that. Yeah, sure. Um, So much of what I heard from different agencies, I talked to CPP about their craft work. Um, I talked to American Greetings about their their piece, which was really beautiful. Angela Natividad wrote it up um, in July. It was about um, a couple struggling with infertility was um, ba- basically what I was hearing that was that millennials just want some realism in their ads. They, they want some uh, honesty and humanity from these brands. Um, they don't want to watch something aspirational. Um, they, they want something that they can relate to. What, what was also interesting was, um, as I was reporting out this piece, um, Babies R Us had this big rebrand from BBDO, and it was all about being more honest and more real in in their advertising. I talked to the CMO, um, Carla Hassan, and she was sort of saying, yes, like, honesty is very important with this generation. It, it's completely, um, you know, one of the reasons why we are revamping uh, how we approach things but only to a point. Like they want to see poopy diapers, they want to see crying, but they don't want to see someone at like four in the morning having a straight panic attack because it's all too much and they don't know what they've done with their lives. Like that, that's like a bridge too far. But, but showing some realistic elements uh, is, is what this generation apparently appreciates. I, I mean, I feel like it's a lot of like diversity, right? Is that people want to see themselves reflected in advertising. They want to see, you know, whether it's divorce or, you know, or disability, whatever it is, like just, it's not to say every ad needs to incorporate that, but just seeing some of that reflected and no one saw themselves reflected in the advertising aimed at parents. You know, it was this idealized, you know, if you want to be this kind of parent, buy this product. And that's just not a message that sells anymore. No, not at all. I mean, I, I feel like the, the one the one piece of advice I give on the rare instance that people, have, you know, new parents or expecting parents uh, when I'm talking to them is just, you know, don't lose sight of yourself. Don't lose your own identity and your own personality and your own interests, because it really is very easy. And I'd be interested to hear your take on this stuff, because I remember you and I talked about this when you were pregnant, is that it it is very easy to let the 24-7 kind of reality of parenthood swallow up your your life and a lot of people fall into that trap but that's it's just tremendously unhealthy and and I feel like we're seeing a slightly more healthy you know per, portrayal of of parents both in TV and in movies as you can have a baby and still be an interesting human being <laughs> who's not have to redefine their entire identity around being a parent that's so true and you know another interesting piece of research that has come out recently is that millennial parents are more stressed than their parents were. And I mean, we could spend a whole episode talking about the reasons why. I mean, certainly that like compare and despair nature of the internet is part of it. Um, You know, parents working more is part of it and being connected all the time. Um, But I think that Babies R Us, for example, was really smart in tapping into that anxiety and that stress. And their message was like, I think one one of their ads, the copy for it was like, 
breathe, like you'll make mistakes, it's okay. Um, that, that kind of message really has an opportunity to resonate with millennials. And, you know, another interesting thing is we um, had a, an opinion piece about the death of helicopter parenting that shows that parents really are shifting from that mentality of completely focusing on their children to the exclusion of their own needs. And they're becoming uh, w what's being called passenger plane parents, where they're, they care about the whole family. They, they want every member of the family to be served by an experience or a product, including themselves. So they're not like millennials aren't willing to totally sacrifice their own needs for their kids. They want everyone's needs met. And I think that to your point, David, that is a much more, you know, some people would say, oh, it's the selfish generation again. But my take is that it is a much more healthy approach to parenting. Yeah, I remember once we were at the dinner table and my kids asked me to do something. I said, no. And, and they were like, why not? And I said, Cause I don't want to, you know, it's like, <laughs> that's that what they, it's like, I, you know, I give them a lot, but there was just something where I was like, no, no, we're not going to we're not going to do that. And one of my kids started to complain about it. And my mother-in-law, who's just a wonderful person, but she kind of like shut the kids down. She was just like, listen, your parents are more active and involved in your life than any parent in my generation ever was. And you should be thankful. You know what I mean? Like she really kind of just brought this sense of perspective of when she was growing up, you were not emotionally attached to your kids. You know, my parents, same way, like no emotional connection, uh, or at least it was very, very rare. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of detachment uh, in that generation that was kind of forced on you by, you know, expectation society. And so it's a wonderful thing. It's also a thing where it's easy to go too far and to let yourself kind of fall into that. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting seeing how much of this, uh, it, you know, is reflected in marketing and how marketers are adapting. And I'm sure a lot of these marketers are millennial parents themselves. And so they're just kind of trying to reflect their own experiences. And like I said, you're seeing this with television, too. A lot of the writing is getting a lot sharper, a lot smarter with how portraying parents in a, in a you know, in a modern way. Well, I, you know, to your point, we could talk about this all day. I, I certainly would like to, but we're out of time. So I uh, wanted to thank both of you so much, uh, Christina, Steph, for uh, coming on to talk about this fascinating conversation. Thank you both for joining. Thanks for having us. Thanks, David. Don't forget, you can drop us an email at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. Coming up soon, we've got a special issue on audience-based advertising. We've got our Project Isaac Awards that honor inventive marketing. Lots more coming up, so keep an eye on adweek.com and on the magazine. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you again, Christina. Please take a moment, if you have not already, to leave a review for us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, those reviews mean a lot to us, and they help new audiences discover the show. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner, and we will talk to you next week. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.